Welcome to the Addiction Solution Podcast with addiction experts Mark Sheeran, Michelle Dunbar, and Stephen Slate, where each week we take on the myths of addiction and recovery and provide the definitive solution to addiction. your host Michelle Dunbar here talking with my Freedom Model co-author Mark Sheeran. We're going to learn a bit about Mark today, his background, why he developed his passion for helping people with substance use problems, how he's come to the conclusions that he has, and how the Freedom Model came to be. Welcome Mark. Hi. Hi everybody. I guess we'll start. Um, Why don't you tell us what it was like growing up Mark Sheeran? (laughs) Well, it was an interesting upbringing. I, I think for the podcast listeners, um, I'll stick with the uh, the history of drinking, drugging, and my family's history with Alcoholics Anonymous and treatment. Um, I grew up steeped in treatment, and I have 11 siblings that are older than me, and my mother was a certified alcoholism counselor. My sister ran a therapeutic community. And um, to give you an idea of how far back this goes, I can remember being seven and eight years old and being smuggled into a woman's halfway house um, for weekends when my mom had me because my parents were divorced. And uh, so that, that's kind of an odd way to grow up. You know? Yeah, that's for sure. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. I can remember making up stories about uh, you know what I did on a weekend when kids would ask at school because I had this odd upbringing with either visiting somebody at a rehab or or uh, being at this halfway house or some odd situation like that. So so AA was a huge part of the Sharon household. There were you know AA big books around and pamphlets and and I was taught that I would be uh, an alcoholic if I ever drank uh, a sip of alcohol because of my German genetics and. Um, and my upbringing. So, so the stage was set for me to have a problem. Yeah. Well, you grew up a lot like I did. Um, when did you start to question all that you'd learned about addiction? Um, do you mean when did I start to question it after I stopped? Or did you start to question it before you even mm-hmm. stopped? Yeah, I, I think that um, the whole time that I drank and drugged since I was little, I, first of all, I started drinking when I was 12. On my 12th birthday, I, I got drunk for the first time and I said, this is awesome. <laughs> and, <laughs> and, uh, for, and then I did a lot of drugs and I did all that for four years. From 12 to 16 was a lot of fun. And, um, but the problem was behind the fun for me was because of the upbringing was this overwhelming sense of guilt. Yeah. I could not enjoy it fully. I watched other kids sort of live with impunity, and I grew up a very free individual. I I grew up in a separate building than my parents, so um, I literally didn't have parents. And uh, I worked every day and went to school and just did my own thing. And I had a in that respect, it was a lot of fun. But at the same time, I would party at night, and then I would feel guilty. And I always knew that you know this is going to be a problem. And it wasn't. It wasn't a problem. I mean, for right. four years, it wasn't. It was just like everybody else. But my guilt, because I was taught that I was going to be that alcoholic, and uh, so I started. I already took on the alcoholic identity, which is the the addiction construct, and um, and I went down that. So for two years, from sixteen to eighteen, things really accelerated into a painful, very painful daily drinking and a lot of drugging uh, habit. 
and I fulfilled what everybody told me I would become, which was an alcoholic, right? I, I self-subscribed to that idea that, yep, I'm an alcoholic. And that was a, a horrible thing. If I was never taught that idea, right. I never, I, I think I would have got over that stage in life like everybody does, you know, yeah. and moved on. You know, this is one thing I don't even know about you. Did your mother um, or your siblings that worked in treatment, did they try to save you? Did they try their little hand at interventions? And- you know, um, here's the irony. My brother, my older brother, who was a longtime AA guy, uh, when I got into that car accident, I ended up getting into a very serious car accident where I could have killed some people drunk driving, and um, I was arrested, and I, I went to jail and all that. Um, when he helped me the next day, he looked at me and said, Mark, you're not an alcoholic. I said, Pete, I, I, I am an alcoholic. I, I really feel like one. I feel hopeless. And I had for months prior right. to that because I was in a wicked bender. And, um, and he said, you're not. You're, you're just at a stage in life. Now, ironically, he was in AA. For, at that point, he was actively a member, but he really wasn't. He was already integrating out. Right, And he recognized in me the fact that I was on the cusp of being brainwashed deeply into the cult. And he was extricating himself from the cult. So there's this very weird timing thing. Now, I had already had a lifetime of being pushed. And I finally said, I am an alcoholic. And then, meanwhile, he's like, I'm not really, dude. <laughs> <laughs> so, so it was... Uh, it was kind he's of, probably thinking, don't go there. Yeah, yeah. He actually... He, but he didn't really know what he was feeling either, right. you know, because he was slowing down the whole meetings and, and doing all that. So, um, yeah, it was, it was an odd time. And, but for me, it was almost like a waterfall. I was in the river getting pushed down this river out of control with this idea that you're absolutely destined to be an alcoholic. And, and when I had that car accident, I finally said, okay, now I need to give in I need to yep. surrender I need and I, to surrender yeah and mm-hmm. I went over that waterfall and boy it's tough to get back up it's yeah. tough because once you mentally give in a part of you dies and when that happened to me um, that the following two years were awful because going to AA is a horribly depressing time I had to let go of the only things that I loved which was my party buddies there were vestiges of good times there. And I had to abandon all that to this lonely recovery nightmare. And I was actually homeless and sober for a little while. I had to do uh, 18 months of treatment because the law told me I had to or I was going to have no freedom and no license. And so I was I was fully indoctrinated and fully in the cult. I, there was no really way out of the trap. And... I can see, and I watched people, and, and I could see myself getting suicidal, and I saw a lot of people in AA, in Troy, Schenectady, Albany, that whole tri-city area where I was going to meetings every day. Um, I saw them die. I saw young people die, you know, and just give in to this idea that they were forever going to be powerless. So that's, that's, that's where I was at that point. You, I know, I know a little bit because of my background with you. Um, this really all began, this whole freedom model thing began when you met your mentor, um, who, and it was your AA sponsor. 
Mm-hmm. Jerry Brown, I want you to, I'm not sure I even know this story of the day that you actually met him. Okay. So, uh, because I was mandated to treatment, I had to get my my little pink slip signed, you know, that I attended mm-hmm. AA. <laughs> oh, yeah. Which is totally ridiculous and anti-constitutional. But, but nonetheless, I had to do it. I had no choice. So I go to a meeting in Boston Spa, New York. My, I don't know, I think it was a Saturday night. And this fella, Jerry, was there. And I didn't know that he was a career researcher. I didn't know that his father had gone to a bunch of rehabs and that he died drunk. I didn't know why this fella was at the meetings. He was actually there to do research. He, he really didn't believe in any of what they were selling. Um, but when he, when he spoke at the meeting, I'll never forget it. It was awesome because the whole time <laughs> I was in AA, I was thinking... God, this is such a bunch of nonsense. Deep in, right. <laughs> deep, in, deep inside, I really, like you said earlier, I, I really did question it. My core being said there's something drastically wrong right. because the logic said I did quit when I wanted to quit. I did. When I got in the car accident, I said, I'm done. I, I was done, you know? So I know I wasn't truly, truly powerless. So this, this fella, Jerry, total stranger to me, uh, they ask him to speak because they go around the room. You know, the listeners out there will, that have been to AA know what it's like. It's really kind of corny. And he got to speak and then he said, you know, I just want all of you to know that you're totally, completely full of shit. <laughs> <laughs> Why am I not surprised? <laughs> <laughs> and the meeting erupted into just total anarchy. And, and I sat back, coming from a, a family of some violence and chaos, I was very comfortable there, and I thought that's the first honest thing I have heard in probably, you know, a hundred meetings, two hundred meetings by that point, three hundred. And I said, I like this guy because it made sense. They were full of shit. I knew they were full of shit. They knew they were full of shit. We all did, and uh, and so it was. Um, I went up to him after the meeting and I said, Would you? Uh, have a cup of coffee with me and let's talk. I, I need some help. I need to understand why I why I'm struggling. Right. And then and he right. said, sure. Yeah. Yeah. Was there anything about the twelve step that, you know, as you as you guys because I know you guys got together and then, you know, he was kind of without anybody knowing, he was bringing people into the fold to study them. Um, and and was there parts of the program in the beginning that you thought were helpful? Well, yeah, the the, the most helpful thing was the core of the freedom model. Uh, actually, he had already been doing research for a number of years. I didn't know that. I didn't know that we were in an observational study. Um, I was just happy that there was somebody that was willing to spend time with me and not tell me that I was this powerless, hapless piece of garbage. You right, know? right. And, and Jerry was just cool. And so... Um, what was your question again? <laughs> was there was there any part of what you were learning oh, and doing that was helpful? Yeah, it was the core the core of the freedom model, right? It was that we could be okay. Yeah. So the first thing that Jerry said to me, I'll never forget it, changed my life, and it and it literally uh, it changed my life. I told him that first day that we were at coffee, I I said, listen, I am really screwed up. I am really desperately desperately screwed up. And I don't know what's up or down. I don't know what to believe. Can you help me? And, you know, I felt pretty lost, really deeply, deeply depressed and lost because AA is a terrible place to just kind of wander at Mm -hmm. 19. 
and he looked at me and he goes, Mark, there's absolutely nothing wrong with you. You're just a 19-year-old kid that just doesn't know what he's doing yet. Right. And when he said that I was normal, he was the first person that was some sort of authority figure in my life. I had gone to see counselors, therapists, all this nonsense, all this outpatient therapy, all of it. He was the first person that ever said I was normal. Nobody in my entire existence as a human being up to that point ever said I was normal. They always said, you know, you'd, you're, 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 you're depressed, you're anxious, you have a disorder, you are an alcoholic, you're, you know, you're this, you're that. And, um, and that changed me. I just needed to know that I was okay. Right. And that was, that really is the core of the freedom model. The, the, the nugget deep inside is that everybody's choosing what they want to do. Even though they may be ill-informed, they may be lost, they're doing what they want to do. And, and I knew that to be true. And, uh, and then my life took off, really. Almost immediately I started being successful at just about everything I did. And, and what made you wanna help people? Because I'll, I'll give a little my background, because obviously he, Mark and I have known each other a long, long time. Um, when they started and they said they were gonna have this retreat house or this guest house and they were gonna help people, um, I remember thinking that they were crazy. I remember thinking that this is an insane thing to do. Um, you're going to go against, uh, you know, the 12-step model. And at the time, I was somewhat new in AA and, and was scared because we were already kind of heretics in the program. And so what, I mean, this was a, this is a tremendous undertaking. Yeah, I, I think that ever since, it's kind of a weird thing. Um, I was an odd duck as a kid. I always felt like, and I, I, this is the only way I can explain it, um, I always felt like I went to a school as a kid, let's say, and that I missed the orientation day. Like I was always the odd kid that felt totally different than everybody, right? And I've since talked to thousands of people that feel this way, so you're not an odd duck. <laughs> Yeah. Everybody's just hiding it like I did, right? Right. So, so, but I did. I felt really disconnected. And the one thing as a disconnected youth um, is I knew what it felt like to be picked on. I knew yeah. what it felt like to be disenfranchised, lost, you know, abused. And I just wanted to help people never feel that way. I wanted, when Jerry told me I was normal, I bawled my eyes out like a baby because nobody ever said that to me. So I said, you know what? I don't want people ever going down a path where they have to go 19 years before somebody says to them, hey, you're going to be fine. You know, I went 19 years without anybody ever telling me that I was going to be okay. So, um, so that's, I think that's the motivation. It was, it was genuinely because I cared and I didn't want somebody to go through what I went through. That's a, that's a great reason. How did you guys first find the, the first retreat house in Hegeman? Well, that's a pretty cool story. So we, uh, we had no money. Um, we had already done the year-long study at uh, the Baldwin House, which was his house on Baldwin Road in Scotia. That's where the Baldwin Research Institute name came from. That's where the Baldwin House came from. Originally, it was called the Baldwin Program. So um, we, had, we had basically finished that. Now, Somewhere along that observational study, I figured out that I was being studied, and then I became his research assistant out of the 38 people that were at his house. And then, so we tied that up, we wrote a research paper, which you can find on baldwinresearch.com, and 
and then we were uh, we had no money we we spent all the money on the research and we sent that research paper out to all the rehabilitation centers in in America at the time because there weren't that many in comparison to today and they wanted nothing to do with any model that said that people could be okay that was the first shock mm-hmm. was learning that the the motive of tr- most treatment the vast majority of people were don't mess with the disease model it makes us money right and then we got notices that they would sue us if we even talked about people getting well, which was really shocking and depressing because we had invested everything we had. We were literally homeless at one point. You know that, me mm-hmm. and Jerry. We knew you at that time as well. And You were using my car. Yeah. She, <laughs> Michelle gave, gave us a car to use. It was a piece of crap, by the way. <laughs> it was. It was a total POS. <laughs> yeah, it was. It was bad. But it, but it got us uh, where we needed to go. So... Uh, honestly, what happened is we're both Catholic. We prayed to St. Jude, who's the patron saint of hopeless causes and cases. And we said, help us find a way to make this all work. And we got in the car and we drove to a place called Hageman, New York. And there was this lady out in front of this old beat up building. And uh, it ended up being a place that in one conversation, she said we could come in, take over the place for nothing. Um, we could have the building for six months free if and I said, can we renovate it? Can we mess with it? And she right. said, yep. Because she was Catholic. She said she had prayed to St. Jude that morning to f- have somebody come along because the house had lain fallow for about two years. They had it on the market. They couldn't sell it. It was an old r- adult rest home. And I looked at Jerry. He looked at me and I said, this is where we start. And right. that's that's a true saint story, Catholic story. I, I can't explain it. Um and we still have that. That's the Twin Rivers Retreat 30 years later. Yeah. And, and, and I, I, what I remember about that house, going in there and looking around it, is it was creepy. <laughs> it was, um, oh, it was a total dump. It was just total it was dump. really, I mean, it was amazing. It's an amazing house. It's, a, you know, it's old. And, um, but I remember you guys sleeping in a room that it's it, with no roof. Yes. And it was February. Yes. We had gutted the room and we had guests in the other part of the building that had been refinished and there was no room left for us. So we, we had, I remember we had to wear hats and mittens and, and there was wind. We actually got snowed on. I remember yeah. we actually got snowed on. Yeah. Those yeah. were rough years, man. Those were yeah. very rough but years. But the guests came first and we made sure they were taken care of. Always. Yeah. So so was the goal of the retreat in it just to help people or what was the actual mission of it? I think it was it was always to help people. That's the motive. But we always knew that we had stuff to learn. And mm-hmm. I think that was really it took 30 years to put all the pieces of the puzzle together about how treatment works, how it doesn't work why why AA doesn't work or does it work you know we had to document all of that stuff and uh, and it was it was a, a huge effort huge effort so I think it was to help people but also learn right and it was a 30-year research project and that was the living laboratory yes that that makes sense what, what do you think was um, the most difficult part when you lived I mean you lived there with them um, working with the guests there the most difficult part by far was coming out of an AA background and AA is a cult so you control people and I had pieces of that 
in me, you know, because I was taught, Jerry didn't do that to me, but I came from a family that was steeped in that sort of control. So uh, I I think that the hard part was, first of all, I lived there for 12 years with my guests. So I had to put my life on hold. Um, I didn't have a normal social life like people. Um, I was under a microscope constantly. I was criticized highly when I'd make a mistake and I made tons of mistakes. But here's, here's, so that was, that was the hardest part was being under that microscope was by far the most difficult part. Um, but it was the only way to truly figure out what nobody else in this industry had figured out, which is how actually to help people and here's why. Because I was forced to listen to my guests. I didn't have the luxury of going home at night and feeling smug about what we did that day. If I made a mistake, my God, I lived with it. That's right. That is true. You know, so that was a great, fantastic experience, but brutal at the same time. Yeah. 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 Well, let's go the opposite direction then. What, What was the best part of it? I loved it. I've loved it. I love the people. I knew that I could make a difference. I knew we were making strides where nobody else did. I knew what had happened to me with Jer that that when he told me I was normal, that may sound small, but to a kid who had never known that, it's everything. I mean, I was literally at death's door suicidal um, at at that point in my life. Um, So the best part was watching people light up I think that when they, yeah. and we specialize, we've always specialized in people that have been to five or more rehabs, right? Right. So you have these people that are steeped, like I was, in treatment, and they're really, really, really depressed, yeah. you know, and totally, uh, uh, I, don't, I don't know, screwed up, but not screwed up, um, just struggling. They, yeah, they, 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 just, they just lost hope. Yeah, yes, yes, they really are hopeless because yep. they've been taught how to be hopeless. That's that's a better way of explaining it. And um, to watch them light up and say, oh my God, I really can be okay. And that this isn't a disease. This isn't um, a disorder. And I say, no, it's just a choice. Yeah. But it's not just a choice when you feel hopeless with it, you know? Yeah. So I, we don't downplay what they feel. Um, but in the end... It's a habit that you create because you have this strong preference for use. And, and when, it, when you're able to explain that in an articulate way and you're able to talk that language, they get it and uh, they move on. And that's exciting. It is. It is. Um, all right. Well, I know that our program curriculum has been updated 14 times, including the late, latest, which is the Freedom Model. Yeah. As it evolved, if you had to pick one concept what would you say has been the absolute most important concept? Yeah, it's the positive drive principle. It's my life's work. It's the pursuit of happiness. It's knowing that every single thing, every moment of your life that you are alive, you're always moving in a direction of what you think will benefit you at that moment. And I tested and retested this theory in all kinds of ways um, with the guests. and, And I actually had... Uh, times where I had them try to prove it wrong that you could do something you hate or that yes. you, or you could do something you don't want to you do. You really didn't want to do. Right. We did. We tested it quite a bit. Yeah. And when people couldn't break the, the positive drive principle, and that is that they're always driving towards the pursuit of happiness, um, they suddenly realize that they've always been in control. Right. That they're choosing everything in their life. It's not to say that circumstances don't happen to you. They do, but then you choose how to react to them. So you're always choosing this path 
And what really screws up people is the idea that they feel powerless and there's a certain attractiveness to, to the distraction of drugs. You know, it's a yeah. huge, wonderful distraction for a little while. And then the, the consequences and the costs come due and it's pretty rough. Um, so, so yeah, that, I think the positive drive principle was the crowning achievement. And then there's autonomy and free will and those are the three legs of the freedom model which are just, you know, what makes up a human being and how we right. live. Well, let's let's get into some of the, you know, for a long time, we were abstinence-based yeah. completely. And, and somewhat, as much as we talked about, you know, we were more freedom-oriented, there was a, a period of time where we were more steeped in the control yeah. aspect of it. Tell me a little bit about that transition. That was a long, slow transition. Um, painful. Yes. Painful. I, I think that coming out of AA, that you, you do tend to um, try to control people and scare them into abstinence. Right. Because when you're teaching people, or you look at it in rehabs, let's say I was a counselor, when you're counseling somebody, you've already prejudged that they shouldn't drink. Right. So so you have that prejudgment and you force them into a situation where you try to scare them to stop. And it doesn't work. It no. works while they're at rehab. Right. Sometimes. Sometimes, right? Not all the time. <laughs> and then and then they go right back to it full guns ablazing because what you actually do when you do that, when you you know, deprive people of what they want, uh, it makes the drug look more attractive. So you create a cycle of relapse, which they justify, and it just repeats itself over and over until the person really is in jails, institutions, or death. So they create an entire trap. Right. Now, I don't think it started out as a trap. I think it's it's the human nature of an institution that tries to control people. So if you have an institution, what I mean by that is rehab, the industry, controls people. That's what it does for money. Right. It says, I will take this person, this 24-year-old that's causing trouble at home from their parents, I will warehouse them over here, and I, we will control them and try and scare them into abstinence and try to force them to do something they don't want to do. The person plays the charade for their parents for the benefits of playing that charade. It might be going home and getting a car or money for an apartment or whatever from their parents because they've played the charade. Then the explosion happens and they go to another rehab and, you know, and five times. it starts times, all over again. Yeah, and it gets worse and worse and worse. And then what happens is the final part of that whole cycle is true hopelessness. Yeah. When they take on the total forced alcoholic and addict identity where they are totally, they succumb to this idea that they have a disease. There is no disease, but they succumb to the idea of it and it becomes one. Then yeah. then when that happens, they're they're doomed. They're literally doomed. Right, and, right. You know, I've been there. I know what that's like. You have too. Yep. And uh, it's wicked. It's, it's it, and it's and it's the wrong thing to do. So, um, yeah, we we undo all those myths at the retreat and in our private instruction options. We undo all of that nonsense. Yeah. It what what happened? Um, it what it was a. I think it was probably two thousand four, two thousand five, two thousand six, when we really started thinking about. You know, we learned that people, most people that stop a drinking problem do so through some level of moderation rather than, you know, once we started learning the data, we thought, you know, obviously there's no loss of control. Um, we had to incorporate it, um, but it has been the last, 
know, the Freedom Model was really the first time that it was front and center um, where we talk about, you know, it's possible. It's the first thing you wrote in the book. Yeah. <laughs> well, I wanted to go right to the thing that, that scares everybody. I wanted to go right to heresy. I, I opened the book when I wrote the forward and I said, or the preface, I can't remember which it is. Um, you know, moderation is possible for everyone regardless of how bad of a habit you have. And, I mean, that's the first words in the book because I wanted to hit the reader right in the face with, this is different. There's nothing to be afraid of. Right. So what we've done in treatment is we have personified or made human substances. We've given them power. We talk about them as cunning, baffling, and powerful. Cunning. That's a quality of an animal. Right. Baffling. It baffles somebody. So it has a mission to baffle you. And powerful. It has actual free will power. Which means you don't. Right. Because the whole implication is they have the power, you don't. So they took the power out of a human being and they placed it in a substance. And when that conversion or transference happened... Um, we went right into fairyland. We went into mythology that kills people yeah. because a belief like that is a religion. So AA created its own religion with its own mythology and mysticism. People believe it. They have their, their all their rituals, their dogma, their Bible, the big book. Um, and I taught all of it. Yeah. I lived it and then I looked at the destruction it was causing at our retreats, the, the, the problems it caused, but then I would say, but you can get over this problem. So I had this dichotomy, this problem. Right. I knew, we, were, we were on that fence for a long time. Oh yeah, and I see a lot of non-12-step programs doing this now. Yeah, you know, yeah. they We created the non-12-step moniker. We literally, the, that term didn't exist until we created it, right? in the early 2000s and um, now people just hop on this bandwagon they say oh yeah we're non 12 step we don't believe in the disease but you better stop drinking you better be abstinence based you better you better you better you better yeah and it's the same old nonsense it's just marketing you know they're just marketing to a crowd that wants non 12 step but they're doing the same old same old same old it's all control model um, so yeah it's it's uh it's been a real long progression from I could, I taught the big book so much that I sat down in front of some people and I said, I can recite the entire 164 pages verbatim. I remember. Without, <laughs> without looking at it. And they said, you're totally full of <laughs> No way. And I said, you get out the book and they recorded me. And I don't know where that recording is now. It was on, it was on a VHS tape recorder thing. And uh, they recorded me, and I did it, and I didn't miss a single is or and or oh but. My I gosh. did so. I so I get it. You know, I get the religion of AA. I went to over three thousand AA meetings and NA meetings. You know, um, but somewhere in that process, you know, uh, what didn't jive started to be questioned. Yeah. And uh, and then we questioned everything because once once you hit the truth, and the truth that people do what they want to do and you don't have to control them, there's a real freedom in that. Boy, there is. It's, it's, it's amazing, and then real progress can happen. Now somebody can tell me, you know what, Mark, I want to go, I, and I'll never forget it. Actually, this happened to me, and this was a, a watershed moment. This fella, I won't give the name, he's, he's actually dead now. 
he said to me, he goes, Mark, I, everything you're teaching me is great, but uh, I'm going to shoot heroin until I die because it's all I really want to do. And I, I said, no, that can't be true. You, you, you have to be happy. You have to do all these things. And, you know, and he said, he looked at me, he goes, stop. This is what I want to do. And he had other issues and stuff that were going on in his life. And, and I could tell. I said, oh, my God, he really, this is what he wants right. to do. And I have no control over any of it. And that's when I realized, wow, I don't think I have control over anything anybody thinks. Yeah. You know, maybe my role is just to listen and provide facts. And that's when the book started to be written. That's when I started to take the big book and transcribe different chapters in it, add some of what I was learning, and that was the second edition and the third edition. Then I dabbled with older editions of the big book and some of the Christian stuff, and then that didn't work. And, and, and so it was this, basically the first nine editions was mixing and matching AA with some freedom model concepts and seeing right. what worked and what didn't. And honestly, by the 10th edition, I got rid of the big book. I said, yes. I, what I found out is that there wasn't anything in that book that was of value. And it was shocking to me. I, I spent my I, life yeah. committed to it. And, um, but it was awesome. Then, then we started the process of writing. And Steve Slate came in the picture, the other co-author of the book. Um, he came in the, the picture. The 11th edition, 11th, 12th edition. So yeah. I, he helped write the 12th edition. I, I started, I think really getting involved in the 11th edition yeah yeah and uh that's been the last 10 years really and, yeah it's been yeah and um and then we wrote the freedom model and the freedom model was a, a a complete it has no vestige of anything it is all research it's the truth and people read it and they're baffled they're like oh my god this makes so much sense because yeah. i'd never been able to document how we changed until that book until that final version and that's you know that's why it's critically acclaimed i mean it's really it's I'm proud of it. Yeah. Yeah, I, I I'll tell you, I am too. It's it's I I I'm a co author on it, but I the, a lot of the stuff that I'm, you guys did most of the writing, pretty much all the writing. I, I collaborated and then went through and did the editing. And as I read it I thought, Holy crap because for so long we were trying to figure out how we did it. Yeah. You know, yes. and, and it yes. really does put in uh, in on paper how people change yes it is the process of human change and because human change how people change is based on some some natural laws of how humans think you know now lots of people have written about that in psychology and some of the newer forms of psychology and psychiatry but nobody had ever done it where we dismantle treatment completely, right? piece by piece. There's this sort of deck of cards and we take each card, we look at it and we show you what the myth is, what the half-truth part is, which is very dangerous stuff, and then we dismantle it with facts. And what happens in that is then people go, oh my God, I thought that way, and but I really did think what you're saying. There is this charade going on and they can, and I watch it at the retreat and I watch it in the office when I'm talking to people and I hear it on the phones. People get this sort of sheepish smile on their face and they go, yeah, you know, you're right. You're right. I, I like getting hammered and, 
and uh, it's time for me to, to move on from this and I want to move on and I don't believe what they're telling me in meetings. I really don't believe what they told me at rehab. It's totally ridiculous, but I played the game and, they're, and I watch them get free. They become free of the trap and, and then they know they can, they can do whatever the hell they want to do, whether it's moderate, adjust their levels of use. And it's so funny, I'll get a heroin user and he says, I, are you saying I could moderately use heroin? I say, people do. Right. I, yes, I say you can. I'm not saying you should. <laughs> right. I, I don't know what you should do. Um, you know, abstinence is probably safer, you know? Uh, but I, I don't even like making that claim because it sounds like I'm an abstinence nut. I don't know what you should do. You should just look at the costs, but look at the benefits of each option. Yeah. What are the benefits? of adjusting your use. If you really believe that adjusting your use or moderating will benefit you more than heavy use, than the benefits you see in heavy use, you'll moderate. Right. I hear all the time people say, I wanna moderate, and they don't. No. So then I say, <laughs> you didn't want to. <laughs> right, right, but I can't, no. <laughs> right, can't and won't. I do different things. Are, are very, they're infinitely different. Right. Anybody can moderate. Many people don't want to. And it's okay to say it out loud and proud. You know, when I was drinking, I can tell you, people loved the party with me. They really did. Because I was totally unapologetic for my outrageous behavior. And <laughs> and and they loved it. They were like, you really have no shame. And I said, when it comes to drinking, I don't. I don't give a flying <laughs> fuck. I, I, I'm going to have a ball. And people loved it. And it made it easy when I finally did quit. That was something that made it easy to quit because I was always honest about that. Yeah. You know? um, so I, I want people to be honest when they're in class with me, you know? So what would you say to someone who's struggling? They've been to treatment. They've tried AA. You know, they there are a lot of people that are, but AA works for so many people and I just couldn't do it. And it, I'm just, you know, and they feel like a failure. Yeah. Well, the first thing I'd say is never go to an AA meeting again. Yeah. Literally, do not ever step foot in an AA meeting if you feel that way. Um, read our book. It'll dismantle all of what you think you know about addiction because you don't know much about it at all. Um, you think you do. What you know is a bunch of religious, the addiction religion. Right. That's what you know, the, the religious mythology wrapped around that. So you are horribly, horribly confused. And in that confusion, it's killing you. So I would say, that's what I would say first. And I'd say, until you read the book, you're really not gonna understand which myths are hurting you, you know? Because we're gonna help you through that process. We're gonna help you figure out what it is that you're so horribly confused about. Um, they, when they say AA works, uh, the statistics show that it, 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 its success rate is incredibly small. Most people do not go to a second meeting. They go to the first one, they go, I don't like this. So the dropout rate is incredibly high. So that should kind of tell you right. right off the rip that this is probably not the best thing. They have a rotational um, membership, meaning people are coming in and out right. at an alarming rate, um, basically processed through treatment and court systems. So people go in and they leave. Now for those that stick around, that's what everybody points to. That guy got well in AA and I, 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 I've had the wonderful experience of interviewing thousands of these people and I was one of them, right? I got well in AA. Right. All right. Um, did you 
quit drinking before you went or did you go to a meeting and then all of a sudden what somebody said in that meeting made you stop in that moment, right? And they say, no, no, I kind of stopped a couple days before. I went to the meetings. I drank a little here and there. And, and then finally it, it, all, it all clicked. And I said, well, you know, you probably would have gotten well without AA. Yeah. Give yourself a little credit and here's why. No external thing can change a human being's trajectory, their mental trajectory and behavior. No external thing can do that. No meeting. Does a meeting come inside of you and change you? And they say, well, something somebody said. I said, whoa, whoa, whoa. Something somebody said, you thought about it, you made a decision to think about it, and then you chose to react to it in some fashion. But the operative word is you. Right. It's you, internal. Yeah, it's internal. It's you choosing it. They, they didn't come inside you and do some magical thing. That didn't happen. Well, the information I got at AA, and I said, well, what, what information? Well, that I had to stop drinking. You don't have to stop drinking. So you chose to stop drinking. You don't have to. There's no alcohol police. Right. Are they in your house? Are they stopping you right now while we're talking? No. Um, so you don't have to do anything. You chose to. Well, the meeting made me do it. Stop saying the meeting made you do that because you did. We just went through that. So it's really difficult for people to really understand that they are the master of everything that happens in their life when it comes to their behavior. They're choosing it. And so now here's, here's what I would call what really everybody is pointing to in AA, and that's the guru. The oh, guru... Yeah is the guy. Now, I was a guru for a little while, so I know a little about this. It's <laughs> By the too. way, to the listeners, that's horribly embarrassing. It's awfully embarrassing. Yes. <laughs> um, but, but the guru is the guy that literally lives in AA meetings and becomes a little, uh, in the addiction religion, he would be the priest or the cardinal or the pope. And and of his little world called a meeting, his home group. Home and group. Yeah. So, so... Those people are the 5% that stick around. And, and they do that because it's their social structure. Yes. It's a place to go where they feel comfortable. They feel they are a subset of society. And, and AA makes you feel very, very special. That you're this, this uh, you know, sort of um, screwed up person that needs to hide away a little bit. And there's a certain junkie pride associated with that. Oh, that's for sure. You know, so that's the success of AA. And I, I got to tell you, you grow out of that. Most gurus will grow out of it. And then you go, wow, I am really glad to be out because that was just really boring and silly. Yeah. 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 We, we did have some good experiences in the early years. I mean, I, I remember we would take a meeting, you and I. Did this for what, for like four years. We took a meeting to a local psychiatric hospital. We yeah. met with teenagers there. Yeah, yes. And it, it really had nothing. I can remember we sort and of... We were supposed to have a meeting, but yeah. <laughs> an AA meeting, but yeah. we never really did. Right. I think we started the first probably 10 or 20 of them. And then we said, what the hell are we reading all this preamble nonsense about AA? Why don't we just talk to the kids? And then, we did. And then it really became about helping kids and... I mean, they were in a mental hospital. I know. They were young kids in a mental hospital, for God's sakes. And I looked at these kids and I said, wow, that could have been me. I just didn't. I lived out in the rural community where there weren't people that would subject me to right. this. You know, I, I got, I dodged that bullet. So I'm going to make their life fun. 
so we made them laugh and we had good we times. It was it was a lot of fun. Yeah, it the was. staff hated us because they we... did. They <laughs> did. You're like, what do you do with those kids? They're so disruptive. <laughs> they were happy when we laughed. They yeah. were always. It was always yes. very sullen when we got there, but everybody was happy when we would le- be leaving. Yeah. Um, you know. Well, I know we have. I know we have our our books. We have the Freedom Model books. We have private instruction. Um, we have a, a residential option. Um, are are there new products that we're working on? And like I don't know, but I'm asking the question so he can tell you. <laughs> you hit them all, didn't you? <laughs> no, there are new products we're working on. Um, we're going to be working on a video. Oh yes, um, online yes, yes. video yes. course. I, yes, I see all of that as the part of that the whole private instruction. But really, it is yes the webinars the. The video classes we're going to have on the websites. We're going to have, uh, yeah. We're going to have a professional certification course. Um, we want to we want to get this out to um, you know mental health professionals and and we we've just started uh, reaching out to to those that Community. those people. Yep. Yeah, and um, you know it's it's time it's time for the freedom model to 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 make a name and and truly begin to change the treatment industry which was your mission from the beginning yeah it is and i think the certification course is the one that interests me the most and here's why um i'm kind of astounded at the amount of doctors we sent a mailing out just sort of to feel out the the community and how they felt about freedom right right and this idea of getting out of a treatment trap, getting out of the recovery trap. I, I see uh, addiction and recovery as two sides of the same coin. They're both a type of bondage that people get wrapped into. Because right. um, you're not free to just be who you want to be. And I wanted to see if doctors, physicians, psychiatrists, psychologists, that sort of community w- was really embraced into the disease concept or were they open to this? Not only were they open, they are excited at the pro- at the prospect of being able to be trained in this model, and to the degree that has actually shocked me. Um, I've been around rehabilitation for so long, and the naysayers for so long, and been fighting that battle for so long with people that don't that have a vested interest in making sure it stays a disease. That I wasn't aware that there's a whole world of people that are like, well, they think just like us. Right. You know, and they've not been uh, infected by the whole treatment game because they're just on the periphery of it and they know that it's been devastating to their patients. Um, and so they, they, they want something different. So um, the, the Freedom Model Professional Certification course we have just about completed. And, uh, you know, a psychologist, psychiatrist, general practitioner, anybody, anybody that really wants to understand how to help people adequately um, can be trained in the model. That's really, really exciting. It is. Yeah. It is definitely. Well, I think we'll wrap it up um, and just, uh, I don't know, I, I... I think this has been a really good interview and if anybody has any questions for mark um you can reach us through the website um, yeah thefreedommodel.org yeah um, thefreedommodel.org uh you can call our toll-free number at 888-424-2626 and yeah and yes we do answer the phone you can get a hold of me or michelle or steve uh, and talk directly with us we want to hear from you 
that's why we're here. Yeah. So we're not we're not this massive corporation that's going to put you on hold and give you a, a number. <laughs> or or a canned response. We yeah. we <laughs> we've had that experience. Um, and and we, we do have a lot going on here and um, a lot of exciting things are going to be happening. You can also check us out on Facebook and Twitter. Um, we have a lot of different social media accounts now. And um, and I thank you for the for the talk today, Mark. Yep. Well, you're welcome. And, and uh, I hope the listeners had a, had a good listen. Wonderful. Thank you so much. All right. Take care. Bye-bye.